Well, it's a joy to have Rich back where he belongs. I appreciate the ministry of Wesley and of John leading worship in the past number of weeks. Uh, But uh, I say leading worship, leading our music aspect of our worship. Uh, But uh, Rich, it's good to have you home. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. So far in our study and the book of Revelation, we've talked about the fact that uh, I understand Revelation to be uh, not just a linear chronology of last times, but actually seven repeating cycles that depict the final outpouring of the judgment of God and the glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the establishment of a new heaven and a new earth. And I'm convinced that these, these events are described again and again, seven times with different perspectives or with growing intensity. In three of the cycles, we find uh, the seven seals on a scroll which is where we are right now. Later, we'll look at seven trumpets that are given to seven angels, and then later yet, seven bowls of the wrath of God. And of course, we know that number seven in the book of Revelation refers to perfection. So we find this scroll in chapter five that has writing on both sides, which is highly unusual. You don't do that with a scroll. Uh, But it's sealed with seven seals. Again, unusual. And there's no one in heaven or on earth, who is found worthy to break the seals, to open the scroll, and to read what it contains. And we said that that scroll represents those things in Revelation 119, those things which are to take place after this. But then the, someone says, look, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ who steps forward, the Lamb who was slain. He is worthy to open the scroll, and then all of heaven and earth breaks out in worship of our Lord But opening the scroll refers to the unfolding of God's plan and purpose in our world. So in chapter 6, we find the scroll being opened, and the first four seals initially are opened. And in our message on that, it was the, we spoke of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, conquest, warfare, deprivation, and death, and those things describe the carnage that proliferate in our world from the time of this writing, and really before, all the way up until the Lord Jesus returns. And all of that carnage and all that catastrophe that is contained and described by the four horsemen, the scriptures refer to as great tribulation. And so in our last message, we were at the, looking at the fifth seal where the martyrs who are dwelling under the throne, the souls of the martyrs are crying out to the Lord, how long until you avenge our blood? How long until you vindicate your name on those who put us to death? And the answer comes from the throne, wait a little longer. Well, this morning as we come to the sixth seal, which represents that last and final judgment day. The blood of the martyrs is avenged. The just and holy wrath of God is poured out on all of his enemies. And the old heavens and the old, and the, and the old earth are destroyed in a cosmic cataclysm to make way to prepare for the new heavens and the new earth. So uh, turn with me, if you just quickly, from, to Revelation 1, verse 19, just a page over for me, probably the same as you, for you. But Revelation 1, 19, this is John's commission. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, which I believe refers to that immediate image that, or vision that he's getting right there, to those that are, and that's 
the letters to the seven churches that's going on. And then of those that are to take place after this. The things that are is not only the letters of the seven churches, it's really the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And it's the martyrs under the throne crying out how long. But then what is to come? And that is what we'll be focusing on this morning in Revelation chapter 6, verse 12, (coughs) to verse 17. And we see the evidences of these first five seals of present destruction, conquest, death, pestilence, violence. We, we see martyrdom taking place with increasing intensity century by century, but all of that changes when we come to the sixth seal because there's nothing in present circumstances that can come close to compare or to correlate with the events described here in these verses. <clears throat> the sixth seal takes us into that realm of that which is to come. So begin, follow as I read Revelation chapter 6, verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth. The moon, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who was seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Now, an important question we have to grapple with as we go through our study is, how do we handle these predictive portions of Revelation? Those who are of the dispensationalist view, which I grew up in, by the way, say that there's a chronological progression of events from the beginning until the very end and the culmination or the final consummation, the return of Christ, the final judgment, and all saints gathered in heaven and the new heaven and the new earth. And so they would look at these seven seals and say, oh, that's talking about the great tribulation. It's the seven-year period. The the church has been raptured out of sight. There's a seven-year period of tribulation that that breaks forth throughout the earth. Then there's a uh, a 20,000-year millennium of of God's restoring work on the earth, and then Jesus comes again. I, I don't see that. I truly do not see that in the book of Revelation, and I don't see it in Scripture I prefer the approach that, uh, that is often attributed to William Hendrickson. I don't think he originated it, but he did a good job of explaining it. Uh, it's been called progressive parallelism. These seven cycles, uh, parallel accounts, as it were, of the final consummation leading up to the return of the Lord Jesus, each one growing in intensity. Now, certainly John is describing a number of visions of what is to come, and uh, I'm convinced that they cover many of the very same events from slightly different perspectives. But the point of this vision, this point of this sixth seal, is the catastrophic devastation that falls upon the earth because of divine judgment. So the sixth seal represents God's judgment in its effects on the cosmos, the world, and on fallen humanity. So there's two points. One, it's the impact on, first of all, on the world. Secondly, on the unbelievers. So first of all, the sixth seal initiates cosmic disintegration. Not just widespread destruction like we see in our day, but something far greater. Nothing less than 
cosmic disintegration, the world coming apart. The world as we know it will be dismantled. John says, I saw a great earthquake. Now, earthquakes in that day were often regarded as a sign of God's judgment. And some of the, some of the cities addressed in the churches in, uh, in Middle a- or, or, or Asia Minor, the seven churches, some of those cities had experienced great earthquakes. But they were localized, and there was recovery from those earthquakes. Turn with me to Luke chapter 21, if you would. Luke 21, beginning in verse 8, Jesus is, is foretelling what is to come. In verse 8, Luke 21, 8, or excuse me, yeah, Luke 21, 8, he says, And he said, See that you're not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. In other words, when the four horsemen come forth, that doesn't mean that's the end. That's what he's talking about here. Then he said that the nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. That's the conquest of that very first horse. There will be great earthquakes and in various faces, places, famines and pestilence, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors for my sake. Jesus is telling them all of this is going to happen, but that's not the end. But what we're looking at this morning is not just earthquakes. And we, we've, we've, we've read about and, and seen on the news earthquakes that, that, that brought about great destruction and devastation in localized areas. This is something altogether different. The earth itself, the, the, the cosmic order will be destroyed, will disintegrate. In Revelation chapter 16, we read of seven bowls of God's wrath. Again, please turn there because I want to, I want to show you that this is a parallel description of same, the same type of event, or really the same event. Revelation chapter 16, verse 17. Then the angel, the seventh angel, poured out his bowl, the seventh bowl, in the, into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. That's what I believe is described here in Revelation chapter 6. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And look at verse 20. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. That's what we see in verse 14. The mountains flee away. He tells us that he sees this great earthquake. He sees the sun turn black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood, which these are prophecies that, are, uh, that, that we find in Joel chapter 2, also quoted by Peter in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. It says, the stars of the sky fell to the earth, and the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island were removed from its place. Again, these are images that are foretold in the prophecies of Zephaniah and Haggai. Well, what are we to make of this description of all of these these cosmic events taking place? Now, remember, we're looking at a vision, right? It's a vivid representation of what is to come. 
but if you have an elementary school uh, study of astronomy, you know that stars can't fall to the earth. Stars are immensely larger than the earth is, right? We know that. It's been said that this could be a, what they call phenomenological description. In other words, the, the phenomenon you observe, you describe it as you see it. It doesn't necessarily say, mean that's exactly what is happening. And we use this every day when we say, the sun rose at such and such time and the sun set at such and such time. And the moon rose. The sun and the moon are not rising and setting. The earth is turning. But we don't say the earth turned so we could see the sun at such and such time. We say it was sunrise and it was sunset. We're describing those events uh, phenomenologically and that's uh, very possibly what's going on here was the sky really going to be rolled up like a scroll or is that more of a phenomenological description are the stars really going to fall or could we actually be talking about meteors Uh, a meteor shower like none has ever seen before creating great destruction I i want you to just picture this in your mind Because these descriptions are there, they're vivid for us to envision, to think about, to use our sanctified imagination. And so picture for a moment devastating earthquakes across the entire globe, causing buildings to fall and causing uh, mass destruction everywhere, a total eclipse of the sun where it doesn't just go dark for a moment, but it's black and it stays dark. That's weird. That's frightening. The moon turns to blood. And how the sun and the moon are visible at the same time, and yet that full moon is now blood red. Or a meteor shower that is hurling meteors at the earth such that they're doing enormous destruction. There was a meteor shower recorded in 1872 where over 10,000 meteors were recorded in a period of two hours. That's nothing compared to what is described here in Revelation chapter 6. Envision massive volcanoes where the the tops of mountains are blowing off, like happened at Mount St. Helens. The the top of the mountain just blew off. But that happening everywhere, and not just the top of the mountain, but the entire mountain is moved away. Lava destroys everything in its path. These are precursors that we have seen on the news of what is to come, it will be infinitely greater. These are birth pangs that we have observed of that final cataclysmic judgment upon the earth, which Joel calls the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, the description could be symbolic. It doesn't have to correspond exactly to what's going to take place, but let me say this, it's never overstated. The symbolism of Scripture is never overstated what is actually going to take place. It understates. When Scripture speaks of the arm of the Lord, to speak of his power, it's not that God uh, has an arm because he has no body, right? But God's power is greater than a trillion arms. The eyes of the Lord go to and fro. We know that God doesn't have physical eyes because he has no body, but he sees all things. He sees more than every eye in the world could ever imagine to see. So it understates a reality about God. And here, if it is to be taken symbolically, it's understating just how devastating the cataclysm will be. It defies description. 
One commentator named Richard Brooks, the Wellman Commentary Series, says, the contents of the sixth seal reveal the literal dismantling of the entire physical universe that will be part and parcel of what happens when the king in glory comes. It will be the elimination, the devastation of the old heavens and the old earth to make way for the new heaven and the new earth. It's so awful. It's going to be beyond our imagination. It defies our description or our comprehension. It will be a cosmic cataclysm. Now, some suggest that, well, maybe what we're talking about here is a nuclear holocaust, nuclear bombs raining down from every direction and destroying the entire earth. 2 Peter chapter 3, 10 to 12 says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. Now, if you read this text carefully, you have to conclude that there will not be a nuclear holocaust that will eliminate all of human life in one moment. How can, you, how can I make that statement? Because there will be many after this is happening or while it's happening crying out for the mountains to fall on them. They're not eliminated. They're not nuked. And the reality is I don't think what uh, John is seeing here and describing here is a man-made cataclysm. I think this is the wrath of God being poured out. Just like I don't think aliens uh, nuked Sodom and Gomorrah, God rained down fire on those cities. And that was a four taste or a for uh, a harbinger of what will happen on the last day it will be the dismantling of the cosmos as we know it it's the wrath of the lamb i'm convinced is initiated by god himself well the second thing i want you to see there here is that the sixth seal produces human despair and devastation never before experienced. Verses 15 to 17. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and the rocks and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. It's important that we recognize this judgment falls on unbelievers. Turn with me. To John chapter 3, if you would. We love John 3.16. Many of us would say that's probably the first verse we ever memorized. But most of us stopped reading at John 3.16. It's important we keep reading. John 3.16, we read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And then verse 18, very great importance. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he had not believed in the name of the Son, only Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And so those who love the darkness rather than the light will be destroyed on that great and terrible day of the Lord. But it is only those who are outside of Christ. Judgment is falling on those who do not believe. Condemnation has been hanging over their head their entire lives. Uh, John says they stand condemned already. Now what we find in 
Revelation 6, he's not so much describing the wrath of God per se. Jesus describes the wrath of God when he speaks of, of, of weeping and gnashing of teeth, of unquenchable fire and eternal torment. It doesn't really describe, John doesn't describe those things here in this text. He describes the reaction to God's wrath, the terror that God's wrath brings upon those who are under his wrath. Please hear me. It will be terrible beyond anything you or I could imagine. The first four seals of conquest and pestilence and death and warfare, those are terrible. But those terrors, what's taking place in the worst part of Ukraine or the worst part of the most uh, uh, devastated portions of war-torn Africa, And wherever else you might imagine, the very worst of it pales in comparison with the terrors of the sixth seal. But hear me, the return of the Lord Jesus and the wrath of God being poured out on this earth holds no terror whatsoever for the child of God. Jesus' return is always described for us as the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We love his appearing. We pray, even so, come, Lord Jesus. We look forward to it with great hope and confidence and anticipation, and we long for his coming. So the judgment described here applies only to those who are outside of Jesus Christ, who are not truly trusting in him as their Lord and Savior. But I want you to see here there is no class of men that's spared from the very greatest to the very least. There are places in this world that are afflicted by violence, by rampant crime, by warfare, by poverty, by pestilence. And the four horsemen are at work in those places with great destruction. But even in the very worst of places, there are some that have sufficient power, sufficient wealth, that they can insulate themselves from the harmful effects of warfare and conquest and pestilence and so forth. They're able to provide themselves a degree of protection from these dreadful human catastrophes. They they have resources even to protect themselves from many of the ailments of life. They can provide plenty of food for themselves. They have the medical care they need. They can avoid many of the hardships that come about because of the curse. But hear me, the terrors of the final judgment, there will be no one outside of Christ who is secure. All classes of men, all stations of life, no one outside of the Lord Jesus is safe. No one is exempt. No one slips through the cracks of the system. It falls on every single one. Now, children, I want you to do something with me. I want you to look at the list of the people there in verse 15. And just, just, just count with me if you would. You don't have to do it out loud, but, but in your minds. It says the kings of the earth. That's number one, right? The great ones is number two. The generals are number three. The rich are number four. The powerful is number five. And then everyone, both slave, number six, and free, number seven. How many is that? Seven. seven. And Revelation tells us over and over that seven is what? The number of perfection. So John, even in the naming of the various people upon upon whom God's wrath will be poured out, uses that imagery of seven to show that his wrath is perfect and complete. It describes, embraces the universal scope of this final judgment. And on that great and terrible day of the Lord, there is no place to hide. 
Even the high and the mighty are trying to hide themselves in rocks and caves in the mountains. You know, our government has built these enormous bunkers in the side and under mountains. Enormous concrete bunkers designed to protect from the most dreadful nuclear holocaust imaginable. And they are of such size and such thickness and such uh, provisions that a government can can continue to run below the earth, untouched by the dreadful effects of a nuclear holocaust. If the very worst that man can unleash were to happen, there is a place where they would still be safe. But in verse 15, we read that all men hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Now, I'm not saying that John is predicting here hardened concrete bunkers. I'm not saying that. But I think there are dispensationalists who would say that. You know, we, we, we find attack helicopters when we read of the locusts with the, the tails that sting like a scorpion. I'm not saying that we draw lines like that. I think that's, that's very uh, uh, temporally short-sighted. It might be another thousand years before the Lord comes back. We don't know. But whatever John's predictive intention is, the most secure places that man can construct for themselves will offer no protection whatsoever from the sixth seal, which is the final judgment of God. Now, let's suppose for a moment, just just supposing, the wrath begins, the, 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 the judgment begins, and the powerful run into these hardened concrete bunkers that were considered to be uh, an impregnable refuge. And yet they can't escape the wrath of God, the face of God and the wrath of the Lamb. And they would cry out for those bunkers to collapse on them and kill them that they might not have to be in the presence of God any longer. The problem is death itself will not deliver them from God's wrath. There is no true refuge to be found. So what is it that holds such terror for the inhabitants of the earth? Verse 16 tells us it is the face of him who sits on the throne and the wrath of the Lamb. Now just think, this terrible admission for an unbeliever who spent his whole life either denying that there's a God or denying his sovereign authority over their lives, denying that they have guilt before a holy God, that they justly stand condemned and they desperately need a Savior. So here they see the face of God sitting on his throne, They see the lamb, and they're terrified. They're stricken with overwhelming terror and despair. They spent their entire lives denying that they needed a sin offering, and now they're looking upon the lamb, looking or appearing as if he had been slain, but he was not slain for them. They see none of the lamb's mercy All they see is the wrath of the Lamb. Now, this is one of the most uh, maybe curious but paradoxical phrases in the entire book of Revelation. We would expect them to say they were terrified at the wrath of the Lion of the tribe of Judah. The wrath of the Lamb? I mean, a lamb is like cuddly and, 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 and soft and gentle and meek and merciful and he's, he's tender. A lamb points to God's redeeming love. 
But here it's as the Lamb of God that Jesus strikes terror into the hearts of the wicked. Why is that? Because they rejected his deity. They rejected his sacrifice. They rejected his invitation and his promise to come to the feast and receive life everlasting. They rejected his warnings about the wrath that is to come. And they rejected and they persecuted his precious bride, even putting them to death. And now he comes in power and glory, and all-consuming fury to settle accounts. Oh, Lord, how long? Just a little longer. Well, now the time's come. And this despair is beyond anything that you and I could ever imagine. They will plead for death to deliver them from the presence of God, but even death itself will give them no refuge. And so we find at the end of this account of the sixth seal, the this, this, this searching question in verse 17. For great is the day of their wrath. There, the Father and the Son, speaking, addressing uh, two of the three members of the Trinity. The wrath, their wrath has come. And who can stand? Who can stand in the face of the day of God's wrath? Please turn with me to Psalm 73. Psalm 73 describes a a very familiar experience that many of us have had where we're struggling and we're saying, I'm not sure it really, I'm not sure it really pays to be a Christian. I look at these unbelievers and their lives are easy. And and, and this doesn't seem to be working. Psalm 73 says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. They have been able to insulate themselves from the impact of the four horsemen. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they, they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? They mock the Lord. Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease. They increase in riches. These are the reflections of a struggling saint who's filled with envy and discontentment. And he says even in verse 13, all in vain I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. He's saying it has not paid to serve the Lord. These are frightening words. Don't stop there. If I had said I'll speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. In other words, he's not going to go out into the congregation and air his doubts and struggles because he knows that would be a betrayal. He knows there's something dreadfully wrong with his perspective. But when I thought about how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went to the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. It was in community with God's people he got a new perspective, a biblical perspective. Truly, you set them, verse 18, you set them in slippery places. You make them to fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment and swept utterly, swept away utterly by terrors like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you arouse yourself, you will despise them as phantoms. When will that happen? Revelation 6 tells us just how precarious 
Those who are secure in this world actually are. They will be swept away like phantoms. It describes the sudden and certain destruction of the enemies of God, how the mighty are cast down, and none will be exempt, none will be delivered, not one will be safe. So please hear me. Please hear me. If you, this morning, if you are not a Christian, if you know yourself to be outside of true faith in Jesus Christ, this text could be describing you and your future. I've heard it said, I don't want to scare people into becoming Christians. I didn't hear Jesus say that. (laughs) Jesus gave dreadful warnings, and, and John said, flee from the wrath to come. Jesus invited people to come to him before it was too late. Paul said, now is the day of salvation. In Psalm 2, now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. There is no other refuge. So yes, this passage ought to strike fear in the heart of people who are outside of the Lord Jesus. It should. Kids, I don't want to give you nightmares. I really don't. But I've heard a lot of kids or people give their testimony that they wrestled with this whole idea of of hell and God's terror and God's wrath, and it troubled them for, in many cases, a, a long time. But that's what the Lord used to cause them to run to Christ. I'm telling you, Jesus is available to all who will come to him, and you don't have to endure that fear for years. All who, whoever wants to come to me, let him come, and I will give him rest. Come to the feast. Come to the table. The great and the least, the rich and the poor. Come to the feast. Come and hunger no more. Now is the day of salvation. He will not turn away any who truly come to him in faith. On that day, it's going to be too late. There is no refuge. Christ will not be available to those who have rejected him up until that day, and you don't know when that day is. So I would urge you now, turn away from going your own way. Turn away from your own sin and turn to Christ. Trust in the Lord Jesus. Put your hope and your trust in him because he will save every single one who trusts in him. That's a promise we find over and over in God's Word. For those who are Christians, we find in Scripture over and over, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 7, don't be engrossed in the things of this world, even the good things. Because he says, this world in its present form is passing away. All those things that we're tempted to set our hearts on, they're unworthy of investing our lives in them because they're not eternal. In John, or excuse me, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, or excuse me, treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but rather lay up your treasures in heaven where moth, cannot, uh, moth and rust cannot destroy, where thieves cannot break in and steal. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. And on that day when this world is dismantled, those earthly treasures will be destroyed. They will be of no use whatsoever. So Christian, Jesus tells us, lay up treasures in heaven. We have an inheritance in heaven kept for us that will never perish, spoil, or fade. And this promise holds encouragement and hope for us. But it tells us, fix our eyes on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In answer to that question of the martyrs, how long, O Lord? And maybe those who were not martyred, maybe those who just have suffered oppression at the hands of wicked men, 
Romans 12, 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That doesn't mean we look at our, uh, those who would persecute us and go, You're going to get yours. No, not at all. But it does mean you don't need to be fretting and worrying about that violation of justice because in the end, justice will reign. The Lord Jesus, giving his life on the cross, was able to entrust himself to him who judges justly and not be distracted by the mocking and the taunts and the apparent hopelessness of the cross. For the joy set before him, he could endure the cross, despising the shame and he could entrust himself, he could entrust his vindication to him who judges justly. Well, here we see it. We see it happening. Sometimes it seems to us like the wrong side is winning. Sometimes it seems like the enemies of God are prevailing. But it's important that we look at the whole story and that we view truth through that eternal perspective, that biblical perspective. All the chaos and the cruelty that are taking place in our present world. That's the first four seals. The Lord said it's going to happen. The persecution of the saints that's taking place, the fifth seal tells us that's going to happen. But the sixth seal is where God tells us that that judgment, that destruction of the ungodly is as terrible as it is certain. And that realization drove away the envy and the bitterness of the psalmist in Psalm 73. He realized, whatever struggles I may be dealing with in this life, they pale in comparison to the glory that will be revealed on that day. We read in Romans 8. But also, whatever comforts these unbelievers are experiencing who seem to be prospering without trial, those will quickly vanish and it will be terrible. God is just. God will execute his justice on the earth. He will do it. But again, this fierce wrath of the lamb, it holds no terrors for the child of God. We are covered by his blood. We are clothed in his robe of righteousness. But let me urge you, if you profess faith in Jesus Christ, make sure that that is real. Be certain that you're not just playing church, that you're not just playing at the Christian life, not living a double life. Scripture tells us, test yourself and be sure that you're of the faith. That doesn't mean we go around constantly navel-gazing, constantly inducing doubts about our salvation. It means we ask honest questions and we seek honest answers from God's Word. And then finally, that day will come. That day must come. Every eye will see, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And And those who are as saints will confess to our great delight, but those who are outside of Christ will confess to their everlasting shame and despair. Every child of God will be set free from every occasion of fear, sadness, sorrow. All things will be made new. For the non-Christian, this world's as good as it's ever going to get, and there's nowhere to go but down. But for the believer... This world's as bad as it's ever going to get, and what is to come is infinitely glorious. Even so, come, Lord Jesus.